This episode is brought to you by Edwards Life Sciences. You're listening to Rocks Art Radio. This month, Roxana Mehran discusses the role of CT imaging with Pamela Douglas and Ron Blankstein. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rocks Heart Radio, uh, where we have an open mic with great discussion with experts. And uh, today, on the first recording of 2020, we've decided to focus on CT angiography. And I am so lucky because I have two of the world's experts here with me, Dr. Pam Douglas, Professor of Medicine, the Ursula Geller Distinguished Professor for Research in Cardiovascular Disease in the School of Medicine at Duke, uh, is here with us. Hello, Pam. Good morning. And uh, we're very lucky to have Dr. Ron Blankstein, who's the co-director of the Cardiovascular Imaging Training Program, um, director of the Cardiac CT, uh, CT Program, and the Associate Professor of Medicine and Radiology uh, at Harvard Medical School, uh, and he's at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, hello, Ron. Hi. Good morning, Roxana. You know, in the past, I think um, how we would approach a patient who we would suspect coronary artery disease or even think about screening for coronary artery disease, stress testing, and maybe even echo stress testing or nuclear stress testing was the way to go. And then we started to have um, great data from you, Pam, from the PROMISE study that you ran for over a decade, I think, uh, showing us some really, really interesting results with the use of CT angiography and uh, the reduced false uh, positives, uh, if you will, uh, by or uh, for, for CAFs um, and a much more efficient way of bringing patients to the CAF lab. And now the ischemia trial where, um, you know, Almost all the patients had to have a screening CT angiography to rule out left main disease. And really, we learned a tremendous amount uh, um, from that particular trial for stable ischemic heart disease. So with the two of you on board, where, are we, where were we before? Maybe I can ask Pam. Where are we today, Ron? And then the two of you can tell me where are we heading in the future in terms of incorporating CT angiography in our armamentarium of CAD diagnosis. Well, thanks, Roxana. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here. And this is indeed a, a difficult topic um, to sort out, partly because there are so many options. There are so many patients, uh, and there are so many options in terms of testing and imaging, and it's very hard to match the right test to the right patient um, when it's needed. I think there, there. I would go back um, and just uh, as we start, note that that there was in uh, the 90s and the aughts a, a significant increase in non-invasive testing, which has since leveled off, so it's not an issue now. Um, in which uh, we became very concerned about not testing patients that had basically any symptom between their nose and their toes. And uh, we did a lot of testing, and uh, it was really when we started looking at the outcomes in the cath lab in the aughts to say that there are just too many patients going to the cath lab without um, having obstructive coronary disease. That, and, and then also in Promise and Scott Hart, when we realized that the event rate in these patients was very low. 
And so before we get on to which test, I just want to put a little stake in the ground to say that we haven't solved the problem of no test versus any test. And, and that is a fundamental issue, I think, as we go into how do we care for this patient. Is this patient's pain so atypical and they are they at low enough risk that they should be treated by reassurance and good control, and I mean good control of cardiac risk factors and risk mitigation, um, and perhaps not tested. Uh, and that is still a, a question out there. How can we identify these patients, and is it safe not to test people that we might normally five years ago have tested? So I'll say that, um, lay, lay that out there, and then I'll link it back to ischemia, where is, if we really don't get a lot of benefit, even from, if you will, the sickest of that cohort of patients, of outpatients requiring testing, if we don't get a benefit from a PCI or cabbage in that cohort, then it, it circles back to say maybe we should even more consider um, watchful waiting, no immediate testing, um, but we have very little data to support that. And, and I'll just throw that out there and to say that that's a question that we are going to need to address. No, I mean, I think you make some really, really great points. Um, I'd love to hear Ron's uh, viewpoint here. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with Pam that knowing who to test and who not to test is is very important, especially in the current era that uh, uh, we are uh, likely doing too many tests for, for patients. Um, and, and whether it's risk scores, perhaps uh, there's data that for low-risk patients, a calcium score might be actually very uh, useful as a gatekeeper for further testing. Uh, we do need to, especially as we move hopefully towards more value-based care, to identify who not to test. But I think one of the big challenges that clinicians uh, face is once the decision has been made to test someone, uh, as Pam started out saying, there's a lot of different testing options. And in order to choose the best test, uh, clinicians really un need to understand the strengths and the limitations of the different uh, approaches. Uh, our discussion today, we're talking about coronary CT angiography, and there's been many advances in coronary CT angiography over the last decade that have made this a, a much more appealing test. Uh, to start with, the radiation dose has decreased by about 80% in the last decade. Uh, but, but probably the biggest uh, strength, in my opinion, is the fact that CT angiography can diagnose a very wide spectrum of disease, uh, ranging from non-obstructive uh, plaque, which if, it, which if extensive could be associated with a high risk, um, and the type of plaque that typically would not be identified with functional testing approaches, to uh, patients with obstructive disease and high-risk anatomy uh, that certainly uh, bear a higher risk. So that ability to look at the entire spectrum of disease uh, differentiates CT from, from other modalities. I, I would totally agree. You know, certainly if there are patients that we don't test or that we think that are very low risk, the more information we can get about their risk and about how they need to be treated, the better off we will be. And a calcium score or preferably a CT angiography, which provides um, much more um, information and more granular information about plaque distribution and type, um, including higher risk plaque, um, is, is the way to go. I mean, it's simply there's information there about prevalent atherosclerosis that just cannot be obtained any other way, and certainly not by any of the stress tests for inducible ischemia. 
You're both suggesting I, we're I, just doing too many stress tests and we should pull back and re-gauge re ourselves into a better screening or a better way to evaluate coronary disease by the use of CTA and calcium scoring? I, 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 I think, think we yes. are, I'll let Ron, yeah, I'll let Ron go. I think we both uh, said yes. I think we have certainly agreement uh, on that one. But even calcium scoring and CTA, CTA is a test. And, you know, if we start doing CTAs on, on everyone, as Pam said, with symptoms between their nose and toes, certainly we'll be doing uh, way too many. But CTA, really, the, the value of uh, CTA is that the fact that the majority of patients who actually need testing, and, and I emphasize need testing because not everybody needs testing, uh, who undergo a CTA either will have a completely normal coronary CTA, which in that case, it provides a lot of assurance and can uh, stop the cascade of needing more tests, or they have non-obstructive uh, uh, plaque or the type of disease that we would all feel comfortably, especially in light of the ischemia trial, to treat them with medical therapy. So the, the real value of uh, coronary CTA is if we do it in the right patients where they will not need more testing and we can then direct medical therapies to the patients who are most likely to benefit from it. And in the past five years ago, when people ask about the strengths of CTA, we would say, well, it's accurate and it detects a wide spectrum of disease. But I think in 2020, when we talk about what is really the strengths of CTA, it's the fact that we now have outcomes data that shows us that we can actually improve outcomes. And this is a, this is a big deal because we've really never had data in all of cardiovascular imaging when it comes to coronary heart disease that we can improve patient outcomes just by performing one test over another. And what we're starting to see now uh, was, was data from uh, the Scott Hart five-year study with the pre-specified sub-analysis from uh, PROMISE looking at patients with diabetes and from other registries that the type of test you do can actually have an impact on, on patient outcomes. Um, and of course, the question there is why is it, what is the mechanism by which a coronary CTA improves outcomes? And the data seems to suggest, uh, to me at least, that it's the use of more aggressive uh, preventive therapies uh, that's making the big difference. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, so it's really important to kind of point out that we're not, you know, looking to do CTAs on everyone and to increase sort of a, a better yield for PCI in the cath lab because you're catching uh, or perhaps even getting to the uh, earlier atherosclerosis, but more importantly is to risk stratify these patients and actually deploy preventive uh, measures. And I'm wondering how the guidelines are going to, I mean, I know that you guys are somewhat involved. Obviously, Pam, uh, you um, were previous president of the American College of Cardiology and have worked a lot on, on some of these committees, but um, you, Ron, I think you're on the chest pain guidelines. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a, ideas of how you guys are going to be looking at these data and how are these uh, going to be translated into what a clinician should do, because I think we as clinicians are very, very um, uh, in somewhat confused who do we not test? Who doesn't get a CTA, you know, over the age of 55 or whatever? Uh, and, and how do we approach this with our patients? Because there's more questions than there are answers at the moment. Can I, Ro yeah. Roxana, I, I think that's a very good question. Can I add one um, little piece of, of background that I think is really important to this uh, ongoing uh, discussion that Ron touched on? The reason that CT 
reduced events in Scott Heart was very clear in that it uh, in improved preventive therapy. So it improves use of aspirin and statins because the care team was able to see the atherosclerosis that was invisible uh, on the stress ECG that was in the comparator arm. And so the value there was in, in small part for revascularization of the very tight left main triple vessel disease lesions but the larger value is the appropriate treatment of atherosclerosis. And that is important to know when you say, well, what's the right test? Well, the test that gives me the information that's actionable. And in fact, that atherosclerosis information is what is actionable and what reduces events. No, I, I completely agree with, with, with that point. Is It's information that's actionable, but it's also treating the patients who have atherosclerosis, the patients who are at most risk. So it's not just treatment, but treating the right patients. Uh, and we've seen this with a, a recent uh, sub-study from Scott Hart that was just published in Jack, uh, looking at subgroups of patients uh, and really looking at the differences in medical therapy. But uh, Roxana, you you uh, you asked about the guidelines, and of course I'm not at liberty to, to share information in the guidelines. But I I would say that the question of who to test versus not to test is one that our committee is uh, certainly spend a lot of time thinking about, and that's going to be uh, an area that we will be uh, hopefully providing some guidance on. But uh, one guideline that is out that we are uh, all able to discuss. Uh, right now is the European guideline uh, that came out this past summer. This is the chronic um, coronary syndrome uh, uh, guideline, which now gave coronary CT angiography a class one uh, recommendation as the initial test to diagnose patients um, uh, who are symptomatic, uh, who have suspected CAD. And the European guidelines actually uh, stated that coronary CTA is the preferred test in patients that have a lower range of clinical likelihood of coronary disease uh, if high likelihood of uh, good image quality can be obtained. And I think one of the, the challenges in the field right now, which Pam, of course, has, has done a lot of work in this area, is how do we determine the likelihood of, of coronary disease? And we have realized now from, from multiple studies, PROMISE being one of them, that our traditional algorithms to look at uh, the pretest probability of having obstructive coronary disease tend to overestimate the, uh, the likelihood of disease. In fact, in the European guidelines, the new uh, table that they published that looks at the pretest probability revised their estimates to be um, one-third of that which was predicted by the prior version of the guidelines. So essentially, they slashed the uh, pretest probabilities down such that the vast majority of symptomatic patients that we today see uh, who have symptoms, their pretest probability uh, is far lower than 50%. This is according to the European uh, model that they're using right now. So I think that's a really important concept because in the past we used to say, well, the patient's level of risk should dictate the type of test. 
Now, uh, really, I think risk is important telling us who not to test. Uh, but in terms of risk level, I think it becomes more challenging in using that in deciding between tests. And instead, one of the things that we should look at is which test is most likely to impact medical therapy. Uh, and it's not always going to be a CT, but in patients who are not on medical therapy, who have suspected disease, CT might be the test that's most likely to impact medical therapy. And then we also have to think about which test is going to uh, have good image quality and is the patient suitable for. So, for example, if a patient uh, has a, a severe amount of coronary artery calcifications, perhaps you know that from a chest CT uh, or they have a, a elevated heart rate that cannot be controlled, CTA may not be the, a good choice because you're not going to have good image quality. You're not going to be able to determine what's going on in the coronary arteries. So I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, selecting between different tests is, is uh, certainly very important, but also understanding who are the patients who are going to be most suitable for each particular modality. Well, these are really, really incredible, incredible points, and I think that uh, where the future is looking bright, uh, I think, uh, for diagnosing and treating patients and really focusing on preventive measures, and I think CT angiography is going to let us go there. I just want to want, you know, because a lot of our uh, listeners are interventionalists, of course, CTFFR has been sort of in the in front, seeing a lot of advertisements. I would like to see really, really solid data. And I, I personally, I'm not convinced that that's going to be the end-all and the be-all uh, way of evaluating patients, that in the end, even if you have um, CTFFR, on the outside that if you are sending the patient in, I think the invasive FFR is going to be the way to go. And I can't imagine that that's the only way we would look at whether we would treat a lesion or not. I'd like to hear your uh, your viewpoints on it. I, I've used CTFFR and it felt good when I see ischemic disease and, and um, using CTFFR and, and when it's you know, over 0.8, over 0.9, I'm like, okay, you're fine. You know, I'll watch you over time. Uh, but to use it as to treat uh, is not something I would do. I'd like to hear what, what you guys think about that. Sure. Well, uh, CTFFR certainly has evolved uh, in has uh, improved the the ability of it to detect uh, lesion specific ischemia, uh, and the studies thus far have shown uh, actually good diagnostic accuracy uh, when compared to invasive FFR. When you look at the diagnostic accuracy, uh, the sensitivity seems to be better than the specificity. And as a result, exactly as you mentioned, Roxana, if the CTFFR is negative, uh, meaning greater than 0.8, I think it gives us a lot of comfort not to refer that patient to the cath lab and not to have to revascularize that lesion. Uh, and of course, this is all assuming in the post-ischemia era that this is a symptomatic patient so that we really want to revascularize for improving symptoms. Um, so if the CTFFR is, is, is negative, we also have now good uh, safety data from two registries that not revascularizing th those patients uh, results in a very uh, low event rate um, and I, I think is an appropriate thing to do. 
I think one of the limitations out there is that CTFFR, and like like all imaging, is dependent on image quality. Uh, so you do need to have good image uh, quality in order to be able to obtain the, the CTFFR. But uh, I, I think as we start to use coronary CT angiography even even more, there's certainly going to be a subgroup of uh, patients that are going to benefit from from this uh, technique. So I would add to Ron, I completely agree with you, I would add to Ron that, that uh, like any diagnostic test in which we have an, uh, a somewhat arbitrary cut point, in other words, a continuum, and we've selected um, with data, but selected a cut point like 0.8, you know, the patient with a 0.79 and a 0.81 is probably not very different. And so when we start getting into the low 80s in an FFRCT in a a large or proximal in a large vessel with a proximal lesion. I, Roxana, I agree with you. If you think you need to, that patient is a candidate for revascularization, that person should go to the cath lab and have invasive FFR. I mean, a 0.81, 0.82 proximal lesion is is really of concern. You know, if it's if it's a 0.81 and it's a distal non-dominant right, obviously we care a lot less. So. Uh, every like like every test we have, it needs to be interpreted in the setting. What's exciting about CTFFR is the opportunity to to really improve the efficiency in the cath lab. We know that with standard care stress testing, that uh, usually 50% or higher of patients are not actionable in the cath lab, don't have a lesion over 70%. Um, but And we know that we can improve that using the CT information. But then we get too many people going to the cath lab because a lot of people have uh, obstructive degree of stenosis without any ischemia. And that has been known for, goodness, the last 15 years with FAME and, and other interventional studies. And keeping those people out of the cath lab who may have a stenosis but don't have ischemia is a really important role for CTFFR. Uh, no, I completely agree with with Pam's uh, points, and you know, both for CTFFR and also for invasive FFR, you know, there are no magical cut points, and especially when we look at patients who are going to have values right around that somewhat arbitrary threshold, uh, we we are going to have to use other information, and the frequency of symptoms, and of course, the location of the the lesions. Uh, I think will all be very important. So these are not numbers that uh, we would ever interpret in a in a vacuum, obviously. Unfortunately, Leslie is not with us, Leslie Shaw. I'd love to hear um, her views about what is the ischemia trial actually going to look, how did CT angiography fare in, uh, I'm sure there'll be a CT angiography major sub-study to look at how they were able to kind of predict events in patients with stable ischemic heart disease. It will be really, really interesting. Um, but I just learned that she is the recipient of the 2020 Bernadine Healy Leadership in Women's Cardiovascular Disease. She's the awardee, and I'm so, so thrilled about that. And just to congratulate her for that. She's so, so worthy of it. Um, I hope we can all celebrate, Pam, together. Oh, at, absolutely. At, I did not know that, and that's fabulous. So night. excited about that. And um, and I just want to thank you guys. Uh, and I would I want to promise... Um, Promise. You like you like that? I keep throwing in promise. <laughs> I want promises from both of you to um, to kind of check in uh, somewhat, you know, in a few months uh, as we get more data out of ischemia and kind of um, helping our interventionalists and our listeners in understanding 
in which way we're we're moving ahead, and especially when the chest pain guidelines come out. Uh, Ron, we'd love to have you back. You promise you'll come back? I, I do promise, and I also want to congratulate Leslie. She's not with us, but I think she is so uh, well-deserving of this award. So I think it's exciting for the entire field to see someone like her get, get this award. I know. It's really exciting. So um, thank you both for your uh wonderful candid views and especially for your unbiased academic view. Uh, it's, it's so refreshing uh, to hear both of you uh, speak about this and help us guide uh, how we uh, treat our patients and importantly translate this to practitioners who will be listening. Uh, so thank you again uh, for your time and I'm going to hold you to your promises. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roxana.